chapter 12, verse 31. If I haven't had the opportunity to meet you yet, my name is Jared. Uh, feel free to swing by after the service because now you know my name. I should know your name if I don't know you. So uh, it's only fair that I know yours. Um, as a church, we are currently in transition between a couple different uh, biblical books. Uh, we just finished up Philippians, and I believe next week we will be starting the book of John. So today makes kind of a standalone sermon, uh, and we'll be in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 31, and we'll continue reading until verse 1 of chapter 14. But here's what it says in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 31. But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. All right, would you please pray with me? Lord, you have indeed shown us a more excellent way. You have demonstrated love to us in Christ and we pray this morning that we would know your love better so that we could love you and love our neighbors as we should. Send your spirit to help us in this way. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. One of the greatest military and political leaders that the world has ever known uh, was a man by the name of Alexander the Great. Creating an empire that encompassed millions of miles, conquering countless people groups, and forever altering the fate of Western civilization, Alexander did this all before he was 33 years old. Quite an impressive guy. There's a fictionalized conversation from his life that I came across recently in a book that I, I wanted to share with you. The story goes that 
Alexander was out with his army on campaign, and they, came, they come into this village. And as, as he enters the village, um, all the people begin bowing down to show reverence to him as he walks by. Well, I take that back. Everyone's doing it except one guy. Okay, there's this older man that's just standing there. He's a philosopher, and he's not bowing down. So seeing him not do this, uh, this actually kind of intrigues Alexander. So then he walks over to him, and he asks him why he isn't bowing down like everyone else. And the old man just asks a question. He says, well, why do I have to bow down? Um, who are you, and what have you done that is so great? And the young king begins to get very angry and says, I am Alexander. I have conquered the world. What have you done? And the old philosopher responds, I have conquered the need to conquer the world. And the thing I love about this old man's response is, hey, you've conquered the world. That's great. Does that make you feel better about yourself now? Does it fill the void of a lonely and broken man who's just trying to find his worth? Answer this, all of the untold amounts of death and destruction that you forced on other people, right? the people who have now been abused or displaced, the children separated from their families, does that really give your life purpose? And it's a reminder to us that even as we go about our daily affairs, as we are consumed by our own importance, that there's still something more important than just accomplishments, right? It's, it's not only the end result of our actions that matter, it's also the methods that we use to get there. It's the affairs of the soul that drive us to make those decisions. And so as we come to the text of Corinthians this morning, we come midway through a discussion Paul is having about spiritual gifts and how we relate to one another. The immediate context of the passage is dealing with these things about spiritual gifts. And it's not just what we consider like the miraculous things, like miracles and tongues, although it is those things. He's talking about people who have seen and are operating under miracles. Uh, but it's also things like giving a sermon or singing a song. A couple of the spiritual gifts are like helps and administration, right? The everyday interactions of people within a body. And in chapter 12, Paul shows how we shouldn't look down on anyone for having a different gift than what we have. Because just like the human body you know, has all sorts of different parts that work together, so should the church body use its different parts and work together. He then says that there are these things called the higher gifts, or in other words, the better gifts. He says the better gifts are not the ones that make you more visible or that make you famous. And this is where we pick up in 1 Corinthians 12, 31. He says, you should desire the higher gifts. You should desire the highest gift. He's like, but let me show you a more excellent way. Let me show you a better way. Let me show you something that is better than all of the spiritual gifts you have and all of the spiritual gifts you've seen. Right? Keep in mind, he's talking to a people who have seen and operated miracles, right? gifts of healing, supernatural wisdom. These people have seen these things, and he says, let me show you something better than those. On a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being the amazing spiritual gifts, 
that make people's jaws drop, what I'm about to show you is a 15. And then he talks about love. The question I have for us today is, do we actually believe that? Do we actually believe that love is better than any spiritual gift we could witness on earth? Maybe we have forgotten that for the Christian, love is not only the beginning of our life, but it's the end and it's everything in between, right? It's not only the ultimate goal of our actions, but it's also the motivation for them, right? We became Christians because God first loved us. We're told in Romans that even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Then Jesus tells us in the great commandments that if you want to truly follow God, you only have to do two things. But they, all, they both hinge on love. He says, first, love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. He says, then love your neighbor as yourself. Our faith begins with love, and it's the ultimate goal of love. It's it's not a bad moral framework, actually, to ask yourself before every decision, how well does this decision help me love God or love my neighbor? Is what I'm about to do, can, I was having a conversation with a guy yesterday, and uh, we were going back and forth on whether something was scripturally allowed, and I just asked him, I was like, okay, give me your argument for why you should do this thing, but give me the argument in terms of how what you're about to do either helps you love God more or love your neighbor better. Every decision, every act of obedience ought to be done from a desire to love God and love others. So let's try to better understand what the Bible and what God mean by love. There will be three sermon points today that I'll have, and they're all going to be in the form of questions. Point number one for today's sermon is this question. Who are we? Who are we? The first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13 show us several scenarios of exceptional ability. He outlines a few cases of the miraculous, and then he turns them on their head by showing how all of them are invalidated if we don't have love. And if, if you think you don't have room to grow in this, let me give you a quote by Francis Schaeffer that I really like. He says, when we see the commandments of God, if it does not feel hard to us, then we are not really letting it speak to us. If we think loving God and loving our neighbor is easy, it's because we don't have a good idea of what that entails. So in verses 1 through 3, Paul shows the supremacy of love over all of these other spiritual gifts. Despite the miraculous, he says we are nothing if we aren't also operating with love. Spiritual gifts without love is like handing a power tool over to a toddler, right? Somebody is going to get hurt. It's just a matter of time. Verse 1 says, I could speak in the tongues of men and of angels. I could have the greatest eloquence in the world. I could speak all the languages of the world. I could preach the best sermons, have words of wisdom, and they would all mean nothing if I don't have love. It's like a clanging cymbal, right? Someone just like banging on the drum set. I don't know if you've ever had like uh, an upstairs neighbor that played the drums or like music way too loud and like you can't go to sleep, you can't hear the TV, you can't talk to your wife. Like it's just super annoying 
and like you can't do anything about it. And all you do, all you wish for, is that they would stop, <laughs> to stop the noise. So too, when we speak, if we don't have love, people can't hear us. And they really wish that we would just stop. And then in verse 2, he says, I could have prophetic powers. I could tell you the future. Furthermore, I could understand all mysteries. I could understand all knowledge. I could tell you everything about the Bible. I could explain every doctrine. And don't we know some people like this? People who can tell you everything about what the Bible teaches, but then they're just just jerks. The American church over the last, I'd say, 40 or 50 years has had an explosion in education. And education's a good thing. But one of the problems is that you have a lot of people with education in the Bible, but then they're so unloving. Right? We should seek education because we should love God with our minds. But the problem is that we have had knowledge grow without seeing a corresponding growth in love. We've got a lot of smart Christians out there that are completely unloving, abrasive, they're demeaning. They would rather correct your theology than show you compassion. And with all of this talk about doctrine and orthodoxy, they have missed the most important thing, just like the Pharisees, right? You know, straining out the gnat to swallow the camel. Because having good theology without having godly living will put you on a self-deceived trajectory straight to the pit of hell. James does not pull any punches in James 2. He says, oh, you believe in God? You understand God accurately? That's great. Well, guess what? The the demons believe in God too. You can have orthodox theology without being an orthodox person. Because being orthodox means adhering to the teachings, living them out. It's not just this mental acknowledgement. It's actually living them. So knowing right theology is only one part of being a Christian. If you have right theology but don't live your right theology, you are deceived. If you're not growing in your love for other people, I would argue you are not a Christian. You can say you're a Christian. You can articulate the doctrines of grace. You can explain God's sovereignty. You can talk about theologians like Luther and Calvin all day long. But if you aren't showing love for other people, I would question your salvation. And I do it on the authority of Scripture. Because Jesus himself says there are going to be a lot of people on the day of judgment who are going to be surprised when Jesus turns to them and says, I never knew you. But Lord, we we did miracles in your name. We went to church. We did all of these great things. How do you not know us? And he responded, because you did not show love to the least of my brethren. I never knew you. My love was not in you. We see it again in 1 John 2, verses 9 through 10. It says, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. John says there are only two options here. You are either walking in love or you are still in darkness. The idea that you can be a Christian but just be like a super aggressive and abrasive Christian, that's not in the Bible. I heard recently that a church can unsay by its culture 
what it says by its doctrine. Your life will either confirm or negate the teachings that you advocate. And remember that love is a fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit are evidences of the Spirit's work in our lives. In fact, love is the very first fruit that's mentioned in Galatians 5. When Paul is writing about the marks of someone who has the Spirit, the first thing that comes to mind is that they are someone who exemplifies love. So I will say this, if the fruit of your life does not exemplify love, then you are not displaying the fruit of the Spirit. And if you aren't displaying the fruit of the Spirit, I think it's fair to ask whether or not it's the Holy Spirit that you're filled with. Now, I'm not here to imply sinlessness. That's, that's not where I'm going. You can go back a chapter in 1 John 1, and you'll see we all sin. We all continually sin. We all you know, fall short of the glory of God every day. We're all imperfect, but love should be the hallmark of the life of every Christian. Yes, we will continue to sin, but the person full of the Spirit will continue to seek repentance and continue to pray that the Spirit would make him or her more loving and more like Christ every day. Every act of spiritual gifting, if not done in love, is meaningless. Do the ends justify the means? If you don't have love, the answer is no. Miracles, acts of faith, even giving away our lives, if not done with love, they make us nothing. And verse 3 says, and we gain nothing. And when Jesus talked of the marks of his disciples, how did he say that the world would know us? He says, the world will know you're my disciples if... You have love for one another. Not if you can destroy the arguments of all of those dumb people on Facebook, right? Not if you can shut down your political opponents. All of this anger and bravado that we see in our culture, that's just the way of the world. Christians should be known for how we love one another, for how we take offense but don't return the offense, how we turn the other cheek. This is the mark of a true believer, And that's the answer to the question, without love, who are we? Without love, we are nothing. With love, we are everything, and with love, we gain everything. So the second point or the second question for today is, what is love? What is love? A few weeks ago, I put this uh, same question on Facebook just to see what the answers of people would be. And I wasn't surprised that the first response to the question, what is love, was baby don't hurt me. Um, And if you like 90s club music, you probably appreciate that response. I know I did. Uh, But the question itself is a little more difficult to answer. What is love? Well, Paul shows us then how love behaves. He says love is known by its actions. So let's look at this list. And one thing I like doing when I read, this, read these traits, instead of just reading them off like, oh, love is patient, love is kind, I like asking them in question forms about myself. So am I patient? Am I kind? Am I envious? Am I proud? You can even pray through them, Lord, make me patient. Father, Help me to be kind today to everyone I interact with. That's one of the ways we become like love. 
But the first up is in verse 4. It says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. Why is it so hard for us to be patient, right? When the traffic hits and you're stuck in line, are you the person just tapping your foot, complaining about the workers? Or are you patient? What about this? Are you kind, right? In the little things, like when your food order gets messed up at a restaurant, are you kind to the waiter? Or is your first thought, I need to talk to your manager? Sadly, the American church has abandoned kindness because it views it as weakness. But may I remind you again that both kindness and gentleness are two more fruits of the Spirit. They are both evidences of God changing your heart. If you are a brash individual, either physically or just with your words, I'd encourage you to look back at this verse. Are you kind? Are you patient? I once heard that kindness is the soil where love grows its seeds. And if all you care about is just like scoring points in an argument, I would say you're not being kind. Christians shouldn't interrupt people and jump in when they're trying to speak. We're patient. We're gracious. We are kind and willing to let people have the last word. And then we take care of people. We are generous with our money and our time. We are kind. We should be. If we are truly loving, it says that love does not envy and love does not boast. It's not jealous It doesn't look at what someone else has and secretly desire it, or it doesn't secretly hate them because they have what we don't have. No, it says love rejoices when other people rejoice. Love is happy when good things happen to other people, especially if it means that you don't get what you want. And then love doesn't boast. It doesn't say, hey, look at me and look how great I am doing. Love isn't arrogant. It's humble. Of all people, Christians should be the first to admit they've made a mistake. And if you're wrong, just say you're wrong. It's humble. Right? Let go of the pride that says you've always got to be right. Because pride is the fundamental opposite of love. People think hate is the opposite of love. I don't think that's true. I think it's pride. Because pride says, look at me. But love says, look at you. Pride looks inward, but love looks outward. Pride may care only about its own reputation, but love seeks to build the reputations and the well-being of others. And this ties into verse 5. It says, love does not insist on its own way. Of all of the items on the list, this is the one that is most difficult for me. And I feel like it gets harder as I get older. Because I keep thinking that what God did in my life has to be the same thing that God uses in the lives of others. Or if God has taught me something, then obviously it should be obvious to everyone else. But if we're honest, we'd see that that's not the way God works. He he moves in a mysterious way. And things that we thought would never work are the very things he uses to make his name known. Love doesn't insist on its own way. It doesn't force its preferences on others. One of the things I love about the other pastors of this church is the spirit of unity that's present. So we have five pastors, 
And there'll be times when we get into the elder room to make decisions on you know, the direction of the church or controversial topics. There's usually some pretty good heartfelt discussion uh, about issues in the church. Usually, uh, I'd say most of the time we agree on most things, but we all come from different backgrounds, see diff- things differently. There are disagreements. Sometimes when we're voting on things, the, voters, the vote is split like three against two or four against one. Usually we strive for unanimous decisions in in most things that we do. But we all realize that most of the issues we're talking about are of secondary importance. And it's not uncommon for someone in the minority to say, hey, you know, I feel very strongly about this issue, and here are my reasons. But for the sake of unity within the church, I'm willing to put aside my preferences and go with this other option. That is powerful. That is love not insisting on its own way. And I think Paul puts it well in Philippians 2, 3 through 4. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. What would happen if all of us looked more to the interests of other people than to our own interests, more than just on getting our own way? What would happen if we tried to outdo one another in showing honor? If we cared for others more than about expressing our own opinions? What if we were willing to be inconvenienced in order to show love to our brothers and sisters? One of the things that grieved me most about how Christians responded to the COVID outbreak was the hostility with which many people treated those whom they disagreed. Now, we can even, there are going to be a lot of people that disagree with me on this, and that's fine. We can disagree on, you know, the science behind masks or how COVID is spread or vaccine. Like, yep, I got it. It's okay to see things differently and to be convinced by different things. But the thing that grieved me was the response of so many Christians who said, I'm not wearing a mask because it's my right to not do so. I will not do that while I'm in church, like when COVID first broke out. I remember at the time, I was just, I I winced at that. Because we had members of our congregation, and actually still have members of our congregation, who haven't been to church in over a year, and who still aren't coming to the church because they don't feel safe. Whether it's due to a weak immune system or family members with high-risk conditions, They don't feel it's safe to be here around so many people without masks. And regardless of what you think of masks, wouldn't the loving thing be for those of us who are strong to bear with the weaknesses of others? Even if we are 100% convinced that masks are useless, would we be willing to be inconvenienced to show love for other people? Could I wear a mask one hour a week as a way to show other people that we care and to make them feel safe enough to come to church, even if they're wrong? Are we that are spiritually strong willing to bear with those who believe? Um, Are we willing to bear with those who are potentially wrong and potentially weak? I, I hate masks as much as anybody else, but if wearing one makes someone feel safe enough to come to church, I'll wear a mask. I'll do it as a way to show love and to prefer the needs of others above my own. This isn't a commandment. It's not a church policy. But it's a way that I've felt that I can show love to other people. 
Love finds a way to help those in their weakness, even if we believe they're wrong, even if we know they're wrong. And that's the argument Paul's making in Romans 14. He says, I know for a fact, he says, I am persuaded in the Lord. I know that people who do this thing are wrong. He said, but if me doing that thing causes my brother to stumble, then I'm not going to do it. Even though God has told me they're wrong, I want to love. I want love to trump my rights. To paraphrase him in Romans 14, he says, if my brother is grieved by how I act, I'm no longer walking in love. By how you act, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Because the way of love does not insist on its own way. Continuing on with verse 5, it says that love is also not resentful. Other translations of this verse I like a little more. It says, love keeps no record of wrongs. Isn't it easy for us to constantly remember the, the pain and harm that others have caused to us? I'm not denying the pain that's been felt or the hurt that's been caused, but one of the things that we must do as Christians is to walk in love. And walking in love means not letting it grow into bitterness and being willing to forgive, not allowing it to consume us, but forgiving others as we've been forgiven. This doesn't mean we just act like it never happened. No, I mean, there are legitimate times and circumstances, especially in cases of abuse, where you say, hey, I forgive you, but for the sake of my safety and others, we need to live somewhere else right now. Is there someone that you need to forgive? Is there someone that has hurt you that you have not yet let, let go? Close friend, maybe a family member? But 70 times 7, that's how many times Christ says we must forgive. And that's not easy. But love is not resentful. It keeps no record of wrongs. And at this point, you might say like, yeah, but you don't know what they've done to me. It, it's impossible for me to forgive. And you're right. I, I don't know what's been done. And after hearing all these things, um, if you're just saying like, hey, man, forgiving the people who've hurt you, letting go of pride, not insisting on our own way, that, that seems impossible. And I would say if you are not a Christian today, then it will be impossible. Because it is only the Spirit of God inside of the believer that can move our will to love someone else the way that Christ has loved us. With infinite mercy, with forgiveness that doesn't stop with mercies that are made new every morning. If you are not a Christian, you will never be able to love someone like this until you have first experienced the love of God personally. Right? Experience the love of God extended to a sinner and a rebel like us. Once your heart has been changed by God, you will then be able to extend that love to others. And for those who of us who are Christians, it is the Spirit in our lives that gives us the grace to love people like he loved us. We love because he first loved us. It's a, it's a fight of faith to do so, but love alone is worth the fight. And this brings us down to verse 6. Love rejoices in the truth. We can only know love when we have embraced the truth of Christ's death on the cross. Without this redeeming love, we cannot love at all. Those who love are those who have found the truth and rejoice in the truth of the cross. 
Love rejoices in the truth. It will always rejoice in the truth. Love will never condone sin or give approval to something that is wrong. I don't want you to walk away today thinking that like, oh, I'm just going to love other people. I'm just never going to tell them they're wrong or I'm never going to say anything if it's going to cause friction. No. Love never rejoices at sin. Love will not laugh at immorality or immoral behavior. Love will never endorse and never support something that is unbiblical. Because love rejoices in the truth. Sometimes the most loving thing we can do for someone is to tell them that they are wrong. Isn't this what we do when we preach the gospel? Right? This way of life you have, it is sinful, it is against God. But speaking the truth doesn't have to be abrasive. There will be, there will always be an inherent offense to the gospel. People will be offended. But it should be the message that's offending them, not the messenger. John 1, which we'll see in the next few weeks here in our sermons, says that when Jesus came, he came with grace and truth. He spoke the truth, but he did it gracefully. And once again, Christians should not be known for their spit and their venom because love is kind. And the world will know that we are Christians. They will know that we are people of God because of the way we love one another. Verse 7 then says that love bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. Love is willing to bear with the needs and weaknesses of other people. It is willing to believe the best in other people and not give in to cynicism or bitterness. Here's a quick test for you. When you hear of someone that did something wrong, or maybe they just did something that you don't agree with, is your first thought to get the other side of the story? Is your first thought to understand their reasons for making that decision? Or do you just gobble up the gossip and then go out and complain? Those who are loving are able to hope and look for the best in everyone, especially with those we don't agree with. Are we willing to view them in the best possible light, to not twist their words, but to believe the best in what they are saying? Love is able to look toward the future for redemption and restoration while at the same time not being discouraged by what it sees around it. And then love love is able to endure, right? To not give up. When other people are not being loving, when the world puts pressure on us that we can't bear, love endures because it is sustained by Jesus himself who said he will never leave us or forsake us. And all of this stuff about love sounds good, but you might even think it's just a little too risky to live that way. I think one of my own problems personally is that I don't believe that people will be loving to me. I don't believe that if I'm honest with people about what is actually going on in my life, that I'll be accepted and loved at the end of that conversation. But God's been teaching me recently that that's not true. There have been a couple times recently when uh, people have started to ask, like, hey, man, how you doing? I've been experimenting with this. A couple of times I've responded, instead of saying, like, fine or good, uh, I've just told people what's actually happening. Uh, I told one guy a couple of weeks ago, I was like, man, I'm at the end of my rope emotionally and mentally, and I'm actually getting pretty close to a breaking point. 
And then I told another guy, I was like, hey, uh, I'm actually, hey, how you doing? Uh, actually, I'm in a lot of pain right now due to an injury. It kind of made the, that next like, second of the conversation a little awkward because it's like, oh, you're not supposed to say things like that out loud. You're just supposed to say I'm good and you move on. But the great thing is that both of these guys who were in the church were both super gracious. And they were willing to say, hey, you know, thank you for trusting me to share that. Or the thing that really surprised me, this is God working, when people have said, and I was actually, it was both times in both conversations, like, you know what, I've been experiencing that recently too. Or I've experienced that in the past. Can I share with you something that has helped me? What is that? That's bearing the burdens of other people. That's encouraging one another. That's showing kindness. Ultimately, it's showing love. It's willing to be vulnerable enough to have love shown to us because we all need it. We all need each other because love bears all things. Even the challenges and struggles of others, when we step inside of these church doors, we are entering a community of people who can be honest with each other. We step outside of a world that is pure competition, a world that is dog-eat-dog. And for an hour and a half every week, this is a time where you don't have to prove yourself. The church is the one place where you don't have to compete with other people. You don't have to put up a front. You can honestly share what's going on with people. Hey, I can't keep my anger under control. Or hey, I'm struggling with pornography. I mean, we have to be honest enough to tell people what is actually going on because that is the only way that the Spirit is going to begin to move in our hearts is when we confess our sins to one another and then we allow the Spirit to minister through other people. I once heard that the church is the only organization in existence where the common feature is the unworthiness of its members. Because we're all sinners. We all struggle with the world. We struggle with the influence of the devil. We struggle with the influence of our own sin and our flesh. But when we come here, we say that we are willing to love one another, to confess our sins and to encourage one another for the struggles that we have experienced in the last week, and to be encouraged for the week ahead. We are willing, like love, to believe all things, to bear all things, to hope all things, and to endure all things together. And this is only done because we are following the example of Jesus himself, who bore the problems of others as if they were his own. So my final question and point for today is this. What did Jesus do? Not what would Jesus do. What did Jesus do? There are a lot of misconceptions out there about love and what love is, but the advantage for us is that the Bible tells us that God is love. So if you want to see how love really looks in real life, all we have to do is look at the example of Jesus. We see how he interacted with people. I want to give you a powerful example of this from the life of Jesus. There's a passage, um, you don't have to turn there, but you can. It's in Matthew 14. I want to share this with you. The context of the chapter is that John the Baptist has just been beheaded by a wicked and drunk king. And John was Jesus' relative. John was also potentially the only other person on earth that truly understood 
who Jesus was and his mission on earth. And so when John is beheaded, Jesus is in emotional pain. And then he goes away to be by himself, most likely to grieve, if I had to infer from the text. But he gets away from people, and he doesn't want people around. But then crowds of people follow him anyway. And if you were grieving and you just wanted to be alone, how would you respond to crowds of people following you? Would you shout out in anger? Would you run away? Would you just curse them? And yet, we see Jesus do something remarkable instead. It says in Matthew 14, 14, that Jesus had compassion on them. He had compassion. He was full of love, and he was motivated by love. Instead of sending them away, he brought them near. Instead of viewing people as a distraction and an interruption, Jesus viewed them as image bearers of God. People that the Father had providentially brought into his life at this time for a God-ordained reason. And then it goes further. It says, then he healed them of their diseases. After that, it goes even further. And he says, he performs the miracle of multiplying the food and he feeds them. I mean, I just, I can't get past this. I am an introvert by nature. Like, I don't like talking to people really at all. And if I were grieving, I would have been furious at these people. Why are you bothering me? I'm just trying to be alone. But because God is love, Jesus sees the needs of others and cares about them more than he cares about himself. And he's not willing to like, just put up with them, like, okay, fine, you can, you can sit around here. It's like, what do you need? How can I help you? You have sickness, you have disease, you have pain, let me heal it. You're hungry and your body's breaking down, let me feed you. That is the way of love. He comes along in their weakness. He does not insist on his own way, but he bears all things, he endures all things. He is patient and kind. We are reminded that Jesus says of himself that he is gentle and lowly of heart. He cares for people and he cares for you. So as the band makes their way up, I'd like to ask you this last question. What are you going to do with this information? Will, will you be one of the people that comes to Jesus? Right? One of the people that brings your anxieties and your cares, your sin and your sorrow, and lays them down at his feet? When we come to Jesus with our burdens, we come to the author of love who is love himself. We come to the person who demonstrated the greatest love of all, being willing to die for his enemies, being willing to die for us. And he invites us to die as well, to die to our own preferences so that the love of Christ can abound in our hearts through the power of the Spirit. Loving people well means we'll have to die to a lot of our preferences. There are going to be a lot of things that we aren't going to want to do, but that love will, will drive us to do. But there's a reward. So what will you do? The choice is yours. Like Alexander the Great, you can continue building a kingdom here on earth, a kingdom based on your abilities and your accomplishments, on your gifts and your talents, regardless of the cost or what it does to other people. Or you can reject your kingdom built on sand, and instead, you can go for something lasting. 
You can embrace the way of love. All of your gifts, all of your accomplishments, those are, one day those are going to fade away. That's what the end of 1 Corinthians 13 is talking about. Like prophecies, they'll pass away. Knowledge, it's going to end. Just like that kingdom of Alexander. But faith, hope, and love will abide forever. And the greatest of those three is love. Giving your life to love God and love others is the only thing that will ever truly last. So the Spirit tells us in chapter 14, verse 1, pursue love. Seek it. Seek out. Find ways. Determine, how else can I love people better? How else can I study how to love others? Pursue love. And in so doing, you will be pursuing the heart of Christ. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we pray for your help. We are arrogant enough to think that we are always right and selfish enough to not care if we are wrong. Lord, but you have shown us the way of love and it looks impossible. But we are reminded that with man, this may be impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So Lord, soften our hearts. Make our hearts like yours. Make our hearts gentle and lowly. Let us come to you because you care for us. Shape us by your love so that we become extensions of your grace into a world that has been so desperately broken and that so desperately needs to see what true love is. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and sing with me.